0: This is producer Lan Lee, welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel podcast, that's blue the color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on piercesalguero.com. Now, on with the show.
2: Welcome to the Blue Barrel. A podcast for intelligent conversations about buddhism asian medicine and embodied spirituality i'm your host dr pierce Salgero, a professor of asian studies and health humanities at penn state's abington college outside of philadelphia today i sit down with amy langenberg a scholar of south asian buddhism gender sexuality and the body we focus on amy's work on misogyny in buddhist texts her book on buddhist embryology and her current project on sexual abuse in contemporary Buddhist communities. Along the way, we discuss miscarriage, menstruation, and the importance of feminist scholarship. And also, what does the Buddha have in common with Michael Phelps? And remember, if you wanna hear more from experts on Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality, subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. Amy, welcome. It's great to see you and thanks for being here with us.
1: Yeah, thanks, Pierce. I'm excited to be here. I've been hearing about this project for a little while.
2: Yeah. So, um, Amy, why don't you just tell the listeners what your job is, what you do these days?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm a professor of religious studies at Eckerd College. Eckerd College is a small liberal arts college in Florida. DeSantis is Florida, so that's definitely (laughs) part of what I do these days. I teach... Mostly courses that have to do with Asia and Asian religion, but I also teach a lot of courses that have to do with gender and sexuality. And I also am the faculty director of a leadership program here where I incorporate a lot of Buddhist practices as well. And yeah, that's what I do. I teach a 3-3, so I spend a lot of, and and we don't do online courses. I have a lot of face-to-face time with students in the classroom.
2: So say more about that leadership with incorporating... Buddhist practices, what, what does that mean?
1: Oh, I have a program that I built from the ground up. It was handed to me right at the beginning. It's called the Eastman Citizenship and Leadership Program. It's a selective program and the students are given some funding to do a series of linked activities and they're all engaged activities. And the focus of the of the program is developing them as leaders, as Uh, individuals who know themselves as leaders, the Buddhist influence comes in because we do a lot of work on leadership skills, not in the sense of how do you command a room or how do you stand up and give a great speech, but more in the realm of how do you have difficult conversations with people? How do you relate to people who are different than you in a way that's ethical? How do you communicate with people effectively? How do you listen actively? So there's all of these skills, which I really have a big internal component. So we have dipped into Thich Nhat Hanh and a lot of other thinkers who are quite influenced by Buddhism, Bell Hooks, for instance, and Race is a huge influence on these students. So I think there's a kind of Buddhist basement, basically, to what we're doing, even if it's not always there explicitly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that actually connects really well with some of the themes of the podcast where we had a lot of folks on who talked about integrating Buddhism into academy in various ways, including in pedagogy also in terms of how they approach their positionality within the field. You know, I'm thinking in particular of a couple episodes by Paula Arai and also by Francis Garrett that, that people might be interested in going back and listening to. So I feel like you're part of a larger picture of finding resources within Buddhism that people are able to bring into different kinds of academic settings and find some real value in this topic, not only as sort of a topic of academic research and critical analysis and so forth, but in terms of a collection of resources or approaches or perspectives that are actually useful in in our own daily lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't actually name them as Buddhist, which... Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, Um, but yeah, absolutely. And Francis Garrett and Paula O'Reilly are both heroes of mine, so I'm very happy to be connected with their work. Another way I think that Buddhist studies has intersected with job at my very student-centered small liberal arts college is... Around my study abroad program, which I've run three times. I'm about to run it again. We go to Buddhist pilgrimage areas in Nepal and India. But the focus is on learning about those areas. But really, like my real agenda with these students is more in the realm of learning about what it really means to encounter a person or a group of people who are really different as a kind of privileged American traveling abroad. So we talk a lot about ethical travel. We talk a lot about a kind of critique of that facile language of global citizenship that we tend to use in education. So it's really kind of a social justice perspective that I bring to the trip and asking questions about identity and positionality. And that's my real agenda. And the students know that they're going to Nepal, they're going to Lumbini, they're going to see the birthplace of the Buddha. And we do all of that and it's exciting and it's we learn about a lot about Buddhist ritual spaces. But they're also using that experience to learn about difference and about the history of colonialism and what that, in a very embodied way, like what that actually means for them as a person traveling through those spaces.
2: Yeah, so buddhism and also this emphasis on social justice and your approach to buddhism i think is a, the theme that we're going to be talking about quite a bit today because that really describes not only your pedagogy and these teaching projects that you're talking about right now but also your scholarship at least as far back as as i've been following your scholarship has been also prioritizing marginalized voices and exploring areas of the buddhist tradition that have been ignored by buddhist studies and you've been i think for many years now, many decades now, on the cutting edge of that in our field. Why don't we, before we dive into the deep end of all of that, why don't we just get to know you a little bit, just, I, I'm, I'm curious. I don't think we've ever spoken about this. Maybe I'm forgetting, but I'm just curious about your own exposure to Buddhism and when you started to be interested in this topic. Was this something that came as a personal interest first or an academic mm-hmm. interest? Or, and where do you fit yourself on this spectrum between scholar and practitioner? Yeah, tell us a little bit about 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 how this all came to be.
1: I would say that I think of myself as this sounds sterile, and I don't really mean it in an academic way. But a South Asian is first, South South Asian Studies person first, and a Buddhist Studies person second, in a way. Because really, I got involved in all of this in my junior year of college when I went on the Wisconsin program, which is a very famous old study abroad program in India. I went to Varanasi, Benares, which was, may have been the first campus they opened. They've now closed it, which is so sad. But Diana Eck went on that program, who's really well-known scholar of Hinduism. She was a mentor of mine. So it was, it's this kind of, it's this program with a lot of history and very deep roots in the city of Benares. And so I did that when I was an undergraduate, and it, abs- it changed my life in so many ways. I, It's the experience that I want my students to have when, I, when they go abroad. Like, I had that sort of shift in perspective where I came back and I could never think about my context, my privilege, my experience of being an American in the same way. And it also really sparked my interest in all things South Asian cultural and religious. And it also was, I think, the origin of my interest in medicine and traditional forms of medicine in that part of the world because I did my project that year on traditional midwifery and I hung out with some midwives and I hung out in some OBGYN wards at BHU Hospital, Banaras Hindu University Hospital.
2: I don't mean to interrupt, I just wanted to point out just how many people we've had on this podcast have mentioned That their interests in Buddhism, interested in all of this, really came from study abroad. I just wanted to underscore that for anybody who hasn't noticed. And a plug for continuing to give our students the opportunity to study abroad and for people to get involved in leading or organizing or mentoring students who are traveling abroad. Yeah, great. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: No. Yeah, talk about an embodied educational experience. It shifts things on so many levels for students. Quite overwhelming, actually. It's usually quite an overwhelming experience as well. So that was how I got involved in studying the languages of India and studying the religion, the cultural traditions. And I kept doing that. I was a religion major at Harvard, and I was also pre-med, actually. I thought I was going to go to med school. But I I ended up not doing that. And I think, as I recall, I essentially chose Columbia University in New York because I already lived in New York. And it wasn't really, I want to study Buddhism. (laughs) It was more like for other reasons. So maybe I got into Buddhist studies accidentally. But I'm really interested in Buddhism as a transnational religion that has been incredibly important across Asia but I think in my heart and in my research I'm really interested in Buddhism in that particular cultural environment of South Asia India and now Nepal. Am I a practitioner? I think I am I'm the kind of practitioner that prefers to circumambulate and offer incense and flowers and (laughs) a cup of tea to my my home altar. I have no.
2: As opposed to a hardcore meditator. Being a great
1: meditator. Being a great meditator, yeah.
2: But at some point, you discovered Buddhist practices or ideas or perspectives had something to offer you in the classroom or offer you in your approach to pedagogy. Mm
1: -hmm. I think, like a lot of people who have spent time in India, I, I first encountered Buddhist practices. the the Tibetan diaspora community in, you know, in Dharamsala and also in Kathmandu. And that was really my first exposure to anything Buddhist. And that is a captivating world. I crossed past the Dalai Lama in the 80s and the 90s. He was giving a lot of Kala Chakra initiations. And I went to a Kala Chakra initiation in Bodh Gaya. And I think that was 88 or something. I might get the year wrong, but it was before Bodh Gaya really Bodhgaya has been, is really much more built up. It was still a kind of dusty town then. And there were just these vast crowds and there was a lot of Tibetans who came out of the hills for this incredibly important initiation, this wang with the Dalai Lama. And there were momo tents where you could go and get that food. And there were just incredible devotion. We were in Bodh Gaya at the Mahabodhi temple. So I think that was probably my exposure initially that really got my attention. Then I did do a thesis on the subtle body. I was fascinated with this idea of something, some entity that's midway between the body and the mind. And so I looked at a lot of the highest yoga tantra texts in English and tried to puzzle that out and also got really interested in looking at the Tibetan medical tradition as well.
2: I guess I first became aware of your work with your dissertation, where I think you went maybe in more in the direction of the medical materials as opposed to the subtle body materials, but specifically working on female bodies, right? And, and processes of conception and gestation and birth and so forth. So how did that become the, the most interesting direction for your research to go in um, as opposed to subtle body or some some of the other kinds of practices that you were just describing.
1: The way that I encountered that topic is that in my Tibetan language seminar with Robert Thurman at Columbia University, we read the medical commentary, The Blue Barrel, which is the name of this podcast as well, which is a commentary in the Gishi. And we specifically read the embryological portion. And I think Bob pulled that out because he knew I was interested in it. And in that text, there was this frequent reference to an Indian Mahayana Sutra called the Garbha Avakranti Sutra, Entering the Womb Sutra, we could say, and it kept coming up. That was an authoritative text that was being referred to from the canonical tradition. And I didn't really know anything about it, but it intrigued me and I eventually decided that's what I wanted to do my dissertation research on. And the imagery and the idea and the story of embryology is just so inherently fascinating and fun to think with. And I think, although it describes the full person coming into being, including Aspects of mind, emotion, and so forth. I think the fact that it was the focus, like the center of gravity is really the physical body, is more where I'm at. It's more where my interests are. It just made sense to me and and it captured my interest. And then the other piece of it, of course, is that, yeah, there was this gender story there, which I found fascinating, because you started out by saying it was about female bodies. And yeah, obviously, the process of birth is very much about the female body. And that was really interesting to me. And then as I got more into that research, what I eventually came to realize or came to think is that this text was really more about the male body and the female body. The kind of gender story that was being told there was in a way quite misogynist. The setting, it's male bodies developing within a female body (laughs) and obviously sometimes the embryos are in theory female but I think it's largely a tradition that is talking about the creation of a male body. There's also a lot of very specific passages in the text, which I think, Pierce, you're aware of, which describe the foulness of the womb in really colorful language. So it's a text that's not positive about the female body. So that also became something that I just couldn't figure out. I remember saying to a quite famous Buddhist studies scholar actually at an interview once. I don't see how they can get away with this. Like, how can the female body, the, the cradle of new life be described in these ways? And so there was just a kind of emotional reactivity that I had that made me want to figure it out and spend some time with it.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking maybe we should just pause and just describe the text, the structure of the text and what kinds of perspectives it brings forward because yeah, you're right, the whole text from beginning to end it invokes just disgust and also like how unfortunate it is to have to be conceived and then to have to inhabit this disgusting environment inside of a woman's body and then to be born and all of this pain and suffering um yeah can you just walk us through like the structure and, and the yeah not in a ton of detail but just a little bit of a flavor of it for the listeners
1: yeah so the text is framed as the buddha's teaching nanda who is his cousin brother on this topic and i think it's in part meant to be a teaching to Nanda to turn away from sensual pleasure and sexuality. And it's a technical text. It does give detail about exactly what develops at what week. And But yes, there's also this other story being told about the unsatisfactoriness of the whole process. So there's a lot of emphasis on the suffering of the fetus, the kinds of indignities it has to endure, the kinds of pain it feels, the kinds of unpleasantness it experiences, smells and heat and just repugnancy, the disgustingness. In fact, there's a sense that the mother is part of the problem is part of what is painful for the fetus. There's a passage that talks about also about if the fetus is breached or if it's not, or if it dies in the womb. There's this passage that describes also what the midwife does, and the midwife is described as greasing up her hand and cutting the fe- fetus to, to pieces and pulling them out. and. That, again, is a kind of scene of violence, right? It's not its not describing something beautiful or life-giving. It's describing something highly problematic. And then after the fetus is born, there's this amazing passage where the text talks about how the fetus feels like a flayed animal being feasted on by insects, right? So the fetus is in all kinds of pain and the caretakers, the mother, the midwife, the other women are, without knowing it, are, are making the pain worse, right? Because this fetus is so raw. So it's a tale of suffering. It's a tale about the unsatisfactoriness of birth.
2: Yeah, my impression, I would would like to hear yours as well, but my impression is this is an example of something that happens in Buddhist texts a lot, which is that Buddhist authors will draw upon the medical knowledge of their times, and they actually tend to often report the medical knowledge quite precisely in quite a bit of detail, and sometimes it's in more detail than we have from the Ayurvedic texts of the same period, but they're really not interested in medical information per se using this to help to heal people. These are ascetic texts written by monastics who are using this medical information really to drive other agendas. And in this case, I guess this is like the definitive text on the suffering of birth, which is one of the four main categories of suffering in Buddhism. Birth, old age, sickness, and death. And this is like the definitive description of the suffering of birth. But then also to drive this misogynist viewpoint about embodiment in general being a bad thing, specifically female bodies are held up as being particularly disgusting and unfortunate and so forth. Um, So driving alternative agendas rather than healing in this text.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I did, not extensively, but in my book on this particular text, at some point was to put it side by side with the Ayurvedic material on birth, on on the process of birth, on the process of labor and giving birth to a child, not the embryology, but the what comes after. And it's quite striking because I think the Ayurvedic text actually it feels like someone consulted women right it feels like someone consulted women who have been in birthing rooms or have given you know given birth to children it feels respectful it feels that there's care taken it feels that there's concern there's advice about what she should eat and what the lighting should be like and who should be there and none of that is present in the Buddhist text, not only is it told in a different light, but it almost gets inverted. Like rather than the story of the creation of life, we have the story basically of death, right? Basically of the creation of imminent death is essentially the story that's being driven by this narrative. So yeah, totally. At the same time, I think, as you said, there's a real interest in the medical detail. And... I always was really intrigued by that where who were they talking to to learn those things? Where was that information drawn from? where was it? Where was the repository? Was that part of monastic medical knowledge it, It's not like a as you're saying it's not like a rough sketch. It's actually an accurate and detailed depiction. so I always found that really intriguing
2: yeah so i one one of the things I guess I w- wanted to bring out is my own feeling that i Became pretty repulsed on a personal level by Buddhism's approach to the body or Buddhism's denigration of the body. And I am aware that there's much later material talking about subtle body practices and so forth where the body has a much more positive valuation in general. But the vast majority of the Buddhist tradition, including basically all of the materials that I've ever looked at in primary sources, is always negative about the body and intensely negative about the body wanting to make the argument that this is a, a trap the body is a is a prison the body is a disgusting loathsome object that needs to be transcended it's a source of all suffering and it really is text like this one that I think for me have most graphically and most impactfully articulated that that kind of perspective and just in terms of the Chinese tradition there are lots of texts that quote this um, sutra or that, that use some of the tropes from the sutra in ways that are equally intended to generate a repulsive feeling in the meditator towards the body. One of the things that most frequently um, comes up is this um, notion of uh, the body being filled with parasites that in the in the Chinese version of this text, you have to remind me if it happens in the Tibetan as well but in the Chinese version of this text as soon as the 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 child is born, it's immediately infected by 84,000, I think, uh, tiny little bugs that crawl into every crevice of the body. And then one of the kind of like very frequent practices to generate repulsion for your own body is to visualize all of these Mm -hmm. parasites that are eating you alive and so forth. Um, So there's just a lot of material in here that I think gets picked up and the tropes get retold and retold as meditation aids in order to help people to use text like this to generate horrific views of their own body do you find that sort of um, usage of the the text and its imagery in your in your cultural context
1: so yeah for sure the the basic tropes of foulness yes obviously that's a huge widespread meditation tradition, right? If you are an ascetic, a monk, you're trying to cultivate or generate a particular relationship to your body, to your sexuality, that much is clear, that much makes sense. My question has always been, though, like, I don't think the fact that it was useful for ascetics trying to turn away from perhaps heterosexual desires they had for women, male practitioners. That's like a necessary explanation, but not a sufficient one, right? I think there's a kind of underlying misogyny and suspicion of women's bodies, of women's sexuality, that is also part of the story.
2: So eventually you published the work that you did in your dissertation, became a book, Birth in Buddhism, The Suffering Fetus and Female Freedom, published in 2017 by Rutledge. I'm curious about the last two words of that subtitle, female freedom. How do we get from this portrayal of bodies and in particular female bodies as being loathsome, disgusting in so many ways, producing of suffering in so many ways? How do we get from that to a female freedom?
1: Well, it's a entirely... Like, wholeheartedly negative texts in terms of female embodiment for women living in a socially conservative context where they had limited opportunities, limited options, and even limited resources for even thinking about themselves as women and their identity. Their options were pretty much to be a wife or a mother. Right, And the kind of definitions of womanhood in ancient South, South Asia were so deeply pegged to female reproductivity, female sexuality, right? So when you think about it, if that is what women are really dealing with, then here comes this text which basically says sexuality is really problematic and the whole entire process of reproduction is disgusting and only produces suffering, this is the perfect moral argument for women to say, okay, I'm gonna take another direction. So my argument was that it was not the intention of the text, but I think this text had the could potentially have the effect of opening up another moral space for women, a more spacious place for them to do something that wasn't fulfilling those kind of cherished values of womanhood, sexuality, reproduction. So in a strange backhanded way, it did open up other options, created another moral space that they could step into. Now, I think that trope and that is represented in that text is, and you were saying this yourself, is very representative of Buddhist attitudes towards the body and Buddhist, in particular Buddhist attitudes towards the female body, right? So it's not like they had to read that text to feel... To make that kind of moral decision for themselves, just being exposed to that kind of sensibility of the body, I think would have been probably quite useful, right? Oh, maybe sexuality and producing sons is not going to be the highest aim of my life. Maybe I don't believe that anymore. I will say that the time I've spent with monastic women, I definitely have had conversations with young women who have decided to enter a monastic environment who've literally said, what is the robe and the shaved head mean to me? It means I don't have to get married. That's not what sutta texts tell you going forth is for, but a lot of women do make that really direct connection, I think.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I guess that sort of is a good segue into talking about your work after this book because as you mentioned, the book is very much a deeply philological project. It's very in a sense, it's very like traditional Buddhist studies approach (laughs) to dealing with a sutra text, right? It very much sticks to the text and is based on philological methods. But a lot of your work since then has involved ethnography and other kinds of methodologies as well. So I guess I, in terms of the trajectory of your work, you can correct me if I'm skipping anything, but I think I noticed sort of a pivot from this work on the embryological text to work, looking at sex and sexuality within the Buddhist vinyas and as your sort of next m- cluster of publications. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I started getting interested in the vinyas as a corpus as a genre. And I've mentioned how hard it is to write social histories of ancient India, but I started getting interested in the Vinaya as a source for a possible way to do that. And in questions of feminist historiography and questions of recovering histories of women. So I think that's, I would say that's where I went next. And I started to think that one of the best ways to do it would be to get at women's experience in these texts, right, they're kind of usually considered to be male-authored texts, right? They're not considered to be generally sources necessarily for female voices, right? But I wasn't really convinced of that. Um, I just knowing women's communities and how they function, it seemed really unlikely to me that the women would not be making rules for themselves, right? structuring their own communities in consultation, probably with the monks community. And I wanted to figure out if there was a way to read between the lines or pull the layers apart and peek in and see some of those processes of female leadership, female authority, female voices, female creativity. And I realized that one of the best, most immediate ways to do that was to look at the parts of the text that talked about women's bodies. In particular, like the very mundane topic of menstruation. Because it seemed to me pretty unlikely that a bunch of monks would really be very competent to make rules for nuns about how to handle that. But there are pretty complete rules in the, in the Vinaya about mon- menstruation and what you're supposed to do if you're a monastic woman. And so I just instinctively went to those um, sections and discovered and this is this is an article I wrote, I think it was published in twenty twenty. It's called On Reading Vinaya and this is an article where I, I do make an argument that women were among the authors of the Vinaya, kind of based on these it's not just the menstrual passages, but that's a big part of the story. Does that make
2: sense? Uh, yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll um, also uh, be sure to link to a number of your publications, everything that we're talking about, but maybe some that we're not mentioning as well um, along the way. Another publication in this area was some translations that you put in an edited volume that I edited in 2017, the Anthology of Buddhism and Medicine. You had a chapter in there. Actually, we included a translation of the... Of the uh,
1: Garbhavakranti Sutra too, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly and as well as some excerpts from the Vinaya about menstruation, actually, and, and other passages. So feel free to mention any other articles as we go. We'll be happy to share those with people.
1: Um, yeah, some are more user-friendly, some are less user-friendly.
2: And so I'm wondering if you can maybe share with us your general takeaway from your exploration of the Buddhist vinyas in terms of their attitudes towards sex, sexuality, female bodies, and so forth? Are we in the same world as these horrific depictions of the fetal development and the inside of the woman's body? Is this the same universe, the same Buddhist kind of discursive world, or is is there something different going on in the vinyas when you look at that as a corpus?
1: We are not in the same world. And that's really exciting. I think in the Vinaya, we're in a much more pragmatic world. The texts are managing communities of people, right? So it's not a kind of airtight polemic. It's uh, an effort to legislate and create norms, which means there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of messiness and there's a lot of grittiness and there's a lot of humor in the Vinaya right? There's quite a lot of stories about foibles, people's foibles. There's a lot of stories about people's kind of grubby behavior, right? And their temptations. And it's a much more down to earth world. And it feels a lot closer to look in at a real community. So no, it's not the same world at all. And I think, although there's been a lot of ink spilled over the androcentrism of the Vinaya tradition and of Buddhist mysticism in general, the subordination of women to men, and all of that is true. But I also think, as I've said, that it's a really fascinating resource for what did women actually do with these ideas, right? I think you can get some of that from the Vinaya and it's not very well homogenized. So you get inconsistencies, you get different voices. No, it's not the same world. You asked about Vinaya sexuality like sexuality in the Vinaya. So that's been a topic that I've gotten really interested in, both kind of rules for male celibacy and also the rules for women. They're somewhat parallel, but not completely. The thing that's really (laughs) amazing about the Vinaya is that it is a fully, I almost would call it It's not sex-positive. It's kind of sex-positive, actually. (laughs) It is kind of a sex-positive text. Obviously, you're not supposed to have sex if you're a monk, but... Yeah,
2: I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) this interpretation, (laughs) yeah.
1: No, you're not supposed to have sex if you're a monk. So uh, clearly, in that sense, it's not. But it is in the sense that... It doesn't moralize about sex, about particular sex acts, or which kinds of sex are good or which kinds are bad. And it's very fully descriptive as a famously descriptive. Early translators didn't want to translate those, like the full text because there was so much kinky stuff in there. So it's a very full description of human sexuality. And some people have said, like, these are made up situations to test the legal limits of the rules, right? And I beg to differ. I would say almost everything that you read in the Vinaya, people definitely do that, right? They do all those things. Somebody does it somewhere. I actually really respect and admire that about the Vinaya tradition, that it is fully descriptive of human sexuality. So that's one thing that I've found really interesting in the Vinaya. The other thing that is, I think, super interesting, and a lot of people besides me have written about this is that heterosexual sex is in the kind of hierarchy of moral wrongs or problematic behavior is the worst kind, right? Whereas other kinds of sexuality are not as serious and the consequences are not as severe. That's been actually really fruitful for instance some contemporary commentators who are looking for resources for queerness in buddhism but that is definitely also really interesting and the other thing that i find super interesting about the vinaya is that certain kinds of same-sex sexuality between women it's not really particularly of concern
2: you mean a non-issue like a like yeah it's not either it's it's not, either um, it's not mentioned at all. at all
1: Right well, either it's not it it probably would be against the rules, but it it just isn't mentioned right so there's this encyclopedic description of sexuality, but certain kinds of same sex sexuality for women is absent. I also find that really interesting it i think open, but just gives some insight into what perspectives were informing Vinaya understanding of sexuality who whose voices were contributing and whose weren't. I could go on and on, but I think I'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> well,
2: I think one, one thing that might be interesting for us to hear about is I know that you're not a scholar who just produces philological arguments about whatever happened 2,000 years ago. And you're also very much plugged into contemporary, particularly female, Buddhist groups, and I think you're somebody who pays attention to how the scholarship that we produce is consumed in the current day by practitioners and what they do with our ideas and our interpretations. I I think you know very well, more so than a lot of people, just how impactful our scholarship can actually be on
1: contemporary um, practice communities. I've tried to make my work responsive to issues that i see are of importance and this feeds into the current work i'm doing on sexual abuse in buddhist communities which is a collaborative project with Angleg which we can talk about but a textual project that's come out of that is i've gotten really interested in looking at ideas of consent so this question of whether the notion of sexual consent exists in buddhist sexual ethics and you know especially Looking at the Vinaya as a source for exploring that. And that whole project actually came out of our ethnography. There's a particular teacher on the West Coast who has been accused of sexual misconduct, multiple allegations. And one of the things that he talked about publicly after the accusations is he started to articulate. A Buddhist sexual ethics, and in some ways, one that would vindicate him, I think. So he interpreted the Buddhist teachings as including the principle of consent. And when he did that, first of all, I, I thought that that was really an interesting way to mount his defense. But I was also like, wait a minute. I don't really think the Buddha taught consent, right? I don't really think that's an idea that you find in the sources. Then I got very curious and went and looked for it, and it turns out there really actually is an idea of consent in the Vinaya, only it's quite differently construed than the idea of sexual consent that has become really important in our sexual culture. And I haven't seen a lot of work like this. I've seen some work like this, but taking a contemporary concern And understanding that a lot of Buddhists do tap the tradition for the authority to say something or for inspiration or to feel grounded in asserting something, some ethical principle, right? Buddhists do look to the classical tradition for their own values or to make an argument about something. And so, in some ways, It's really interesting to me to take contemporary questions that people are asking and using that as your research question and going back into the textual tradition. I find that that methodological move is really fascinating to me. And it feels, to me, it feels like it's one answer to the way that the humanities have just really been so degraded, right? And people don't want to invest in the humanities and there's so much kind of public discourse about, you know, it's useless, it's elitist. So I feel like that kind of approach is one answer to that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I had in mind to ask you this question because I recently was listening to an episode of another podcast, it doesn't matter which one, that had an interviewee on it. He was a scholar of Buddhism, but more of a traditional philological approach that's still very much alive within the field, This, but is more of a sort of a 19th century or maybe early 20th century methodology. And this scholar was, he was lamenting the decline of Buddhist studies. He had a lot to say about the university more generally that I would agree with, but what he was specifically pointing to things like studies of women in Buddhism and sexuality in Buddhism. He specifically mentioned those as topics that are watering down proper scholarship, which he was defining as like rigorous philology, or traditional European style, um, So I had in mind to ask you, because as I was listening to him talk, I was like, yeah, but Amy does both, right? As we were saying earlier, it doesn't get more rigorously philological than the kind of work that you were doing for your dissertation. But you're working on women in Buddhism and sexuality in Buddhism, the very things he's pointing to as watering down the tradition. And so I had in mind to ask you, why is it important to have both of these kinds of scholarship? Why is the latter important enough for somebody like you who's got the philological chops to do just the first one. Why is it important enough that you be engaged in this way with these topics and with this kind of like more social justice agenda that you have? Why is that just as legitimate scholarship? Why is that making just as large of a contribution to Buddhist studies as the philology?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I think I would probably make the argument that It's not ethical not to pull the lens out. I think like the philological roots of Buddhist studies are always going to be really important because there's just worlds inside of worlds in this huge corpus of Buddhist texts. And we're discovering new manuscripts. is the Dunhuang collection and all the other manuscripts that have come to light, right, which really change things about how we look at the history of Buddhism. And, of course, the study of languages is so vital because things mean differently in, in different languages, right? The kind of texture of the language and the semantic range and the way that language carries culture, right? And I don't think anyone would argue that it's not important. It's so important, I think, however, that at least for me, and I know many of my colleagues in America feel this way, the time has really passed, both from an ethical standpoint, a political standpoint, and also from just a pragmatic standpoint, that we can do philological scholarship purely without connecting it to broader questions. Whatever that looks like, I think it looks different ways for different people. Some people do Buddhist constructive work. So people like Joy Brennan has been doing textual work but asking questions about race in relationship to Buddhist philosophy, philosophical works from India. Nick Wakowski is connecting his study of lower caste groups in the Vinaya, to contemporary caste politics in India. So people are doing it in all kinds of different ways. But I don't think we can really ethically defend, not at least attempting to make contact with a broader range of stakeholders, because a lot of us, we don't have the research funding, we don't have the institutional basis. For me, I have to communicate with 18 to 22-year-olds all day long, and I feel that my research should connect with their interests. I'm the person who is here being that resource for them. I should be able to make that connection with their interests. That's part of my job. So there's the practical side of it. But I also think that intellectually it's really hard to justify because, I mean, even putting those things, the moral ethical, the social political, the financial, the pragmatic institutional, all those questions to one side, you have to tell me your argument for why the real authentic Buddhist studies is rigorous philological study full stop. I need an argument for that. And why, okay, now I'm going to get agitated, but why wouldn't the study of half of the population of Buddhist communities not be a legitimate thing to focus on? That makes no sense to me. I don't see the intellectual justification for that. Equally, sexuality is one of the central topics of Buddhist thought. It's a huge preoccupation. You're saying we can't focus on that as Buddhist studies people? Again, I need an intellectual argument for that. I don't see it. I don't understand it. Philology is one methodology. So yeah, it's almost hard to answer that question because it just makes no sense to me, to be honest.
2: Yeah. Obviously I agree with what you're saying because I'm also somebody who does this kind of scholarship, but I feel like I guess part of to put on the hat from the other side and try to articulate the opinions that I heard being expressed, perhaps there is a definition of Buddhism is the texts that was kind of like operating behind the opinions that, that he was expressing, right? That it, it like a limited definition of what Buddhism actually is. A Buddhism is the texts and the ideas that are expressed in the texts. Um, and so therefore, philology isn't just one methodology, it's like the method, right? And everything else is watering it down. But I think you do work on the texts themselves. When you do your philology, you are focused on sexuality and women in Buddhism, right? So I think your work is like a direct refutation to to the kind of like false binary that was being created in that, in that yeah. particular person's expression of disdain.
1: And also the Buddhism is the text kind of stance. I think the field is really expanding and, and diversifying in terms of much more attention paid to domestic practices, the practices of people who perhaps aren't literate. And also, the texts themselves are, by their very nature, elite, right? They're gendered male, in a sense. And so, I think there's a turn towards a much more active focus on attention being paid to incorporating diverse Buddhist voices, not just the elite voices that are able to make themselves heard in these texts, right? And... That's a lot of what our Buddhist Bodies Collective Project is about, which I think we're going to maybe try to talk about at some point. Trying to create a Buddhist studies that's more from the ground up, from the margins in, that's more embodied, that's more inclusive of diverse voices that's less normative, that's more descriptive actually. Let's look at all things Buddhist and they include many more things than a body of texts.
2: Yeah, once again anticipating my next question because I was actually going to pivot over to talking about the Buddhist Bodies Collective project so I'll just I guess I'll just set it up by saying this is a collaboration between you and Stephanie balkwell and we'll put the link in the show notes. Maybe before getting into the details of the project itself, Maybe I should just ask you, what what is a Buddhist body, right? The Buddhist Bodies Collective. <laughs> what, what are Buddhist bodies? Because just so far in this conversation, we've just taken one small slice of Buddhism. And so far, we've got disgusting bodies. We have practical bodies. We have menstruating bodies. We have male and female bodies, sexual bodies, ritual bodies. All kinds of different bodies are lurking in the conversation already. So what do we mean by... Buddhist bodies or is there a Buddhist body? Why is that term the interesting unit of analysis for this project?
1: I suppose it was a direct response to the kind of voice that you were describing from the podcast that sees Buddhism as the text. So our idea was to create a resource that takes body as the portal as the way in for exploring Buddhism and from the ground up. So body as a metaphor, body as something that is sexed and gendered and has race and is socially classified, body as something which is involved in ritual body as a metaphor for the cosmos. We're using the the word really expansively, but it's a way to create a more kind of mandala-like approach to Buddhist studies, and one that is more conducive to including diverse voices and diverse bodies, indeed, and diverse practices. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, as we were talking about earlier, some of those bodies are not going to be literate. They're not going to be interacting with Buddhist texts, but they're still equally Buddhist. It's not something we're holding on to tightly. We're not trying to define body as one thing. We're kind of using the term playfully as a way to turn things on their head a little bit and try to tell some stories about Buddhism or get at some aspects of Buddhism which are... A little more remote when you rely on Buddhist history, Buddhist doctrine, Buddhist institutions. Those are very conventional ways of organizing how you talk about Buddhism, right? So we're putting all of those to one side. Not that they're not important, but let's talk about bodies.
2: And let's talk about bodies from the very beginning, because it is designed to be a platform for brand new students to learn about Buddhism. And it's Targeted not just towards entry-level undergrads, but also maybe for high school students as well, right? So you're building the picture of Buddhism from the very beginning from this different angle than, like you said, the traditional sort of sects and schools and doctrines and so forth.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about the idea of creating a platform that would be open access, free, available, and that perhaps high school teachers could use as well as people teaching in colleges or universities. But we're definitely looking towards the younger student introductory level. We've asked um, everyone who's contributing a module to also contribute a some kind of embodied exercise that relates to their content. And as well, the modules are multimedia. So this is part of the fact that we really want to reach a diverse group of people. We want, want it to be accessible to younger students. There will be a lot of visual audio visual material and also some ideas for instructors or professors some ideas about assignments some ideas about discussion questions learning activities as well as some content references to academic articles and so forth so it's very multimedia with a lot of pedagogical support.
2: And so who's involved with the project? You got a whole group of scholars that are contributing modules to the website. And I guess I should also just say that I've been involved with the BBC as well. And I have a a couple modules in there myself. Just thought I would say that.
1: So we gathered a group of scholars. Uh, They're very diverse in all kinds of ways, seniority, area, specialty, interests, kinds of institutions they work at. Some of them are still grad students or advanced grad students. And the idea is we're crowdsourcing. We created a collective and we're hoping that the collective will grow. We're very interested in scholars outside of the current group also getting involved. And our idea is we'll start filling in modules, different teaching topics and that eventually we'll see this kind of map of Buddhist life. So everyone who's involved with the project is a qualified scholar, uh, and everyone is going to create content for the website according to their own desires, their own interests. In other words, we're not really structuring it from the top down like we want to cover this topic and that topic. For example, we have a module on... The 32 marks of the great man, which are the, the lakshanas, right? The marks on the Buddhist body that mark him as a exceptional being. So that's like his long earlobes and the Ushnisha bump on the top of his head and his flat shoulder blades and so forth and his golden color. So one of our contributors, Gurian Altenberg, who was a recent PhD, contributed that module. And it's really interesting. He uses Michael Phelps as a kind of point of comparison, because Michael Phelps is famously described as having the perfect body for swimming. So he uses Michael Phelps as a foil for talking about what these lakshanas really mean. So he uses Michael Phelps as a way to get at that. And he also frames it within disability studies. And it's really creative and it's really great. And I would love to teach that model in a class. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I love that example because it really illustrates how to hook, particularly high school students and early college students, into studying something like the the Lakshanas, right? And this is just a great example. We'll definitely put the link in the show notes and people that are interested in checking it out, whether it's to learn yourself about Buddhism and the body, or if it's to incorporate into a class. It's actually quite easy to take one of these modules and drop it into a syllabus, and it's a very Beautiful website and also quite easy to navigate around. So we'll point people in that direction. Uh, And if people want to join the collaborative, they can just reach out to you.
1: Yeah, for sure. me or Steph.
2: Yeah, great. It's coming together more and more every day. As we're recording right now, there's people working on, on modules. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how the site develops and changes over the coming years. Um. I feel like we went a little bit too fast over the current project with Anne. I feel like that didn't get articulated enough. So you mentioned that you're working on this collaboration with Anne Gleig. So Anne Glag, for listeners who don't know, is a, an ethnographer who works on contemporary American Buddhism. And then you're the, the, ph- the philologist and the historian on this team. And so the two of you have teamed up to explore the topic of sex abuse in Buddhism more generally. And like you said, in response to some of the things that have been happening in Buddhist communities in the last couple of years. Actually, these things have been happening in Buddhist communities f- forever, but we're just actually hearing more about them these days. So, yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what you have planned for this project and what direction it's going in?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, so this is really what I've been doing for the last four years very intensively we're looking at sexual abuse in buddhist communities and we're focusing on north america we're not looking at abuse in asian monastic contexts or even asian american communities we're looking at convert communities specifically and it's an ethnographic project although there's been some journalistic work and there's been some academic work june campbell wrote a book in the 90s traveler in space which is a full-length academic study of gender and sexuality in Tibetan Buddhism in which she comes out as a survivor of abuse. But there hasn't been very much balanced scholarly treatment of this incredibly important issue. And, Pierce, as you mentioned, people have been much more aware of it, and that's mainly because of the Me Too movement. But there have been waves of allegations of abuse in American Buddhism since the 80s, early 80s maybe before, maybe the seventies. It's not a new issue by any means, but we just really felt like this is also speaking of Buddhist studies and disciplinary formations. This is also part of Buddhist studies. Abuse is part of Buddhism. It's not separate from Buddhism. It's a topic in Buddhist studies that should be studied. Um, We both are, you know, we're both feminist scholars, so it's an explicitly feminist project, whoever you were referring to is not going to like it very much. It's a also a survivor-centered project, so our orientation in this project is that we're going to, as much as possible, tell the story, drawing on, or being inspired by, or taking the position of the survivors. That's our orientation in the project. Mostly when people have covered this issue, it's either been a kind of exposure of the abuse, so there's a focus on the teacher. That's most of the way this the story has been told or the topic has been covered has been from that perspective. And so we don't want to focus on the whys and hows of why these people do abuse. We want to talk about what it means for the people to whom it happens. And... In particular, we're looking at the Buddhist context. So we're looking at, for instance, how Buddhist doctrines get weaponized, get brought into the story, how they're used for grooming. So that's something that we're looking at. And we're also looking also at the ways that Buddhist communities are responding. So we're looking quite a bit at some of the, we call them generative responses. So Buddhist communities responding to these situations and changing in the process, right? Bringing in new elements into the way that they do things and the way they think of themselves as Buddhist. So that's the project we're hoping to submit at the end of this year. I just want to again mention or emphasize that it's collaborative. My partner, Anne Gleg and I have been walking this road together And we actually hardly ever talk about the project independently. We always try to do it together. And the collaboration is definitely a feature of the feminist methodology that we're using, right? That we're not lone hero scholars writing our manifesto, right? And the collaboration goes beyond us. This book is the product of the input from a lot of community members and a lot of survivor allies and people who've been working on this issue for a while and then the survivors themselves.
2: Yeah and the two of you have also been involved in putting out some YouTube videos and another kind of collaborative effort as well maybe we can just mention that for the listeners.
1: It's called Abuse Sexuality and the Sangha, Conversations for Healing, but it's a series of YouTube videos with different teachers and advocates and allies who have been involved for quite a while in responding to this issue. And I think it's a really helpful series. Uh, it's unprofessionally produced, um, but I think the content is really, I would say, cutting edge people just very raw, just talking about how they've responded to this in their community and the work they've done with survivors. It's a five-part series, so different topics.
2: We'll definitely put those links in the show notes as well. Are there other dimensions of the project that are public at the moment? I know the book is planned for release in the near future, but are there other things people can look into?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we did a podcast with Canadian Public Radio. And uh, there've been a few publications that we've put out in the Buddhist press. So we can also link to that. I, I actually did a version of my work on consent in Tricycle Magazine. And Anne's written a couple of things as well. So we can link to that as well. And another, I think, really pivotal piece that we wrote is something that we did for the Shiloh Project, which is, it's actually a podcast, but it's also an online publication. And it is the focus is on the Bible and gender-based violence, but they also include other traditions. We did something for them that is called Sexual Misconduct and Buddhism Centering Survivors. And that's where we explain the genesis of our survivor-centered methodology. So if listeners are interested in that, I think that would be useful. And then I guess I would also like just to add that the project, again, I think talking about Buddhist studies and what Buddhist studies can be, and perhaps what it should be at times at least, we're really interested in producing a book that is accessible to communities, right? To people working with this issue, as well as to academics. So while it is a scholarly book, it's going to have scholarly apparatus, we're aiming to write it in a a way that's very accessible so that it can actually be useful to communities, right? It can be pragmatically useful. So that that is our goal. I suppose it's a kind of engaged scholarship that we're doing.
2: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and and thank you both of you for doing this really important work. I know it's not easy and that I'm sure you've both had pushback from the people in the academy saying this isn't legitimate scholarship or people in the public that are taking umbrage at the fact that you're insulting Buddhism. I think the work you're doing is really important and I'm very happy to... um, be able to amplify it here on the podcast
1: thank you for doing that both of us have felt that it's been a really hard project to do it's a very dark topic it's very upsetting i think we both have secondary trauma i think i could use that term but i think we both have also felt i don't think anyone could talk us out of doing this project it just feels like it's not hard to come up with motivation just feels like it's writing that's needed and there's something really inspiring about that I'm not sure I really felt that way about my 2017 book, for instance. I wasn't sure I felt that was a piece of writing that was needed, but I feel like this is a piece of scholarship that's needed. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing scholarship like that. I don't think that means it's not also legitimate scholarship. I definitely believe in let many flowers bloom, right? We don't all have to do exactly the same thing. There's different varieties of work and we can value each other's work even though it's different.
2: So seems like you have a lot of projects on the front burner right now, not only the BBC that's coming together that we were just talking about, not only the collaboration with Anne on sexual abuse that we were talking about earlier, but you have something else up your sleeve that you're working on, is that right?
1: I do, I'm super excited about it. So I'm going back to my philological roots, but again, with a kind of different sort of non-traditional framing. And it's another collaborative project, I hope. So um, I hope to be working with Nick Wachowski, who was also a Vinaya nerd, just like me. And we're really excited about doing a translation, probably of excerpts, of a really fantastic Bikshuni Vinaya, a nun's Vinaya. It's in Sanskrit, or Sanskrit. It's a Buddhist Sanskrit. It's from the Mahasangika school. The full text has been translated into French, really good translation in French, not into English yet. So we are big Vinaya fans. Like just, It's just such a fantastic, vibrant genre, and it's not something people typically read, for instance, with their undergraduate classes. Um, but we think they should. And also this text is really a woman-centric text telling the story of the nuns' community. Our idea is to pick out juicy, interesting, important sections of the text, produce beautiful translations of them, do it in a way that will be relevant to the Buddhist studies classroom, and then write a long introduction in which we frame what we're doing as feminist historiography, in which we talk about some of the complicated questions about trying to resurface or bring to awareness the lives of women in the ancient world to make visible their lives. So we're going to start trying to get some grant support for it. And again, we're excited to work together. I don't think I ever want to do any big projects alone ever again. I'm definitely into collaboration.
2: That that sounds like drawing together these two kind of sides of the field, with philology on one side and a feminist scholarship on the other side in a way that once again is showing that they're actually not opposed to one another, They're actually not separated, but actually woven together in your work and the work of a lot of other people. So does the body feature in the translation? Is this going to be a lens through which you're selecting texts or analyzing the texts But this? It seems like all of your work has focused on the body in some way <laughs> or another. Is that still happening in this?
1: You know I will go straight to those passages, which are the most embodied. I will definitely want to translate some of the menstrual texts. I definitely want to do *Parajika* 1, the sexuality texts. For sure, there will be a lot of body in there. Some of it covers things like washing clothes and bathing and really practical stuff that is really fascinating from the perspective of gender, right? Those kinds of activities are very gendered.
2: Yeah, cool. So, Amy, this is your show. I mean, I want to make sure that we've covered everything that you want to cover and and that there's nothing that was left uh, unsaid or anything else that you want to talk about before we say goodbye.
1: I don't think so. I think that's enough of me, my God.
2: All right, then. Yeah, Amy, I really appreciate the time that you spent with us sharing about your work and your current projects, your future directions. I also really want to thank you just for teaching me about the body is such a central theme in Buddhism. I've really learned that from reading you and some of the people, that other people that we've mentioned in this podcast, just how central the body is everywhere you look in Buddhism. And also for the feminist scholarship that you have connected with work on Buddhism and medicine and so forth. I've really, really looked to you as a leader in our field, in that area. So yeah, just thank you for teaching me everything that that you have just really valued our collegial relationship, but also our friendship and uh, look forward to seeing you at a conference in the near future.
1: Yeah, as do I, and thank you so much. It's really an honor and also really fun to talk to you about all of these, this big sweep of topics. Thank you so much for including me in this project.
0: that's it for today from us at the blue barrel podcast this episode was hosted by pierce alguero and produced and edited by me lan lee all of our music is by jonathan pettit if you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform you can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com bluebarrel until next time be happy and be well